Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. How can Canada's policymakers and security agencies work better together? We'll talk about that. Canadian troops in Latvia are grappling with a gear and equipment shortage that's starting to get depressing. Christian Leprec, professor at both the Royal Military College and Queen's University, will talk to us about that. And the PGA is merging with Live Golf, and not everybody is happy about that. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, hearings in Ottawa about uh, foreign interference continue. Uh, yesterday, uh, former Governor General David Johnson appeared before that committee, and uh, he says he's going to be in holding meetings next month on foreign interference in Canadian elections, and the ongoing politicization of the issue is not going to deter him. He was testifying before the Commons Committee, and uh, he said reforms are urgently needed. Through those public hearings and the hearing from experts and others, and with your help as the review committee continuing your work, I hope we can treat this with the urgency it deserves and stand proud before our Canadians to saying we are doing everything in our power to protect them. Uh, that's uh, David Johnson. I, I'm somewhat skeptical of whether or not we're going to reach that goal, at least be by way of this committee anyway, uh, based on some of the stuff we saw yesterday. Joining us to talk about this uh, is Stephanie Carvin. Stephanie, of course, is an associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Uh, Stephanie, great to talk with you again. Thanks so much for the time today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Let me let me ask you first and foremost. I, I, by the way, I just mentioned about my frustration. I don't know if you had a chance to watch any of the uh, uh, hearing yesterday. Uh, but, you know, for a, a committee that is supposed to be trying to find out what's going on with foreign interference uh, and, and how deep it goes and, and, of course, you know, some of the concerns about information gathering and how it's disseminated, uh, the opposition members spent their whole time, their allotted time yesterday, just t- taking shots at David Johnson's character. They didn't even ask one question about foreign interference. Uh, we're, we're, we're not moving the yardsticks here. And I, I read your op-ed piece uh, in the Globe and Mail about this. Uh, we've got some serious problems here, and we've got to get focused on these, don't we? Yeah, uh, we do have serious problems. I mean, look, I mean, Parliament is political. <laughs> They're going to yeah. absolutely, I think, take um, the political view of this. And, I mean, it, you can't you can't fault a tiger for having stripes sometimes. Um, and I get that. And the other thing I would just add here what kind of blows my mind is that the thing with with David Johnson's, I, you know, his response is, well, you know, Parliament is misinformed, so I don't have to listen to any of their criticism. And, like, that's such an unnecessary argument. I mean, all he has to do is say, look, I was appointed by the Prime Minister. I serve at the pleasure of the Prime Minister. And if you have a problem with that, go to the Prime Minister. What I don't understand is, as you pointed out, everyone's, you know, because of the way he's handling this, everyone's attacking him. And not, you know, the prime minister It's kind of, it's, it's odd, like, right, he's not in this conversation, even though his relationship with David Johnson is. So it's just a very odd situation. But yes, I mean, the thing is, so the, like, I think there is a legitimate political issue and debate that's going on oh, about sure like, is, who is yeah. best placed to handle this. I, I don't think you're going to deny that. The thing is, that I worry about is that there's other things here at stake. Like we're, We are kind of missing the forest for the trees, the fact that in the Johnson report, whatever you think of it, uh, they clearly are highlighting um, a number of structural issues that are impeding our response to the issue of foreign interference, like the way that intelligence is apparently not flowing through government, um, problems with you know ministers having access to classified information, um, things not being acted on. Um, like there's this really kind of devastating critique in this paper, and so. Uh, based on some of the research that I did with my colleague Tamajuno in that editorial, we're, we're trying to propose 
you know, the idea that we need to actually address some of these things. Well, and, and that's the point I'm trying to get to. And you know, we've, we've had the discussion, and there's a star, strong argument to be made that maybe Johnston wasn't the guy to pick for this. But, okay, that's that's settled. That's you know, But he's, there's some information here uh, that, that we really need to talk about here. And, and you're right. I mean, he even admitted yesterday that maybe part of his report was based on incomplete information. But what struck me about this, though, Stephanie, and I'm glad you brought it up because I know you did in the piece on the Globe and Mail, is, is we got a problem here with information. Our, our, our intelligence agencies don't seem to be connecting uh, with with the government here when it comes to information the government should be used and to have eyes on. Uh, and it's somewhere along the line, there's a huge, huge communication gap, and, and nobody seems to be talking about that. Yeah, I, th- that is like a real issue. And it's something that we documented. I mean, it's not new. I would actually argue that this has been a problem that's been going on for decades, and that is the fact that Policymakers don't really take intelligence seriously. I think I think Canadians, by and large, when they think about our intelligence community, they think it's just like the U.S. That the prime minister has a daily intelligence brief. That you know, intelligence is is a you know, there's some kind of national security council that's thinking about intelligence issues. Um, that you know, people are rushing into the prime minister's office with like vital pieces of information. None of this happens, right? <laughs> like, this is mm. not something that happens at all on um, in, in terms of, 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 of our national security arrangements. In fact, our policymaking community and our intelligence community are, are really in two solitudes. The fact is that policy doesn't really understand intelligence and intelligence doesn't understand policy. And so when there are important issues like, hey, should we let Huawei in the country or should we sell our oil patch to this Russian company? Um, you really do want to have a good, um, you know, like, like, like an informed decision. So I'm not saying that intelligence should be the, uh, the, the be all and end all of decision making in Canada, far from it, but it needs to be a kind of um, factor that, you know, Canadian policymakers are at least thinking of and, 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 and considering when they're making decisions. And so we need to create some of the structures that would help do that, like a cabinet committee on national security, right? We don't we don't actually have one, which I think surprises a lot of people. We have one on like foreign affairs in Canada and the world. We don't have a national security uh, cabinet committee. Uh, we need a cabinet, you know, we need to, we have some institutions, but we have no person who's able to coordinate the intelligence community. So making sure that like the RCMP and CSIS are working together appropriately to prosecute, um, uh, you know, collect intelligence on and then prosecute uh, individuals engaged in national security crimes. And we need to make sure that intelligence, you know, you know, and I, and I say this as someone who's to write intelligence products, like literally as my job, um, you, it, it, you spend a lot of time and effort on these things and it really is kind of demoralizing when they go into a black hole and we, we shouldn't be distributing intelligence products to, for the egos of intelligence analysts, but you know, we're pouring billions of dollars into this and I think we need to do a better job. And, and so all of this just takes a little bit of reshuffling, a little bit of political will um, to actually kind of uh, change the culture around intelligence and national security in the country. There could be some historical perspective here, too. I mean, you know, when you look back not too many generations, uh, we didn't pay a whole lot of attention to, to foreign affairs and things of that nature. You know, we kind of, hey, we got Big Brother to the south of us, and they've got all those agencies, and, and if there's something really important, they'll let us know about it. And as a matter of fact, they'll probably protect us in some way, shape, or form, so we're going to be cool. But the world's a different place. Uh, I know we are a member of the Five Eyes, and you've certainly heard the reports, as we have here, 
that our partners in there are kind of looking at Canada and say, guys, you better step up and, and start carrying your weight here uh, about what's going on. Because what's going on, we, you know, we talked about the interference with China, with Russia, uh, India, apparently, uh, and, and so many other countries right now. Uh, we need to evolve into a 21st century intelligence gathering operation. And, and I, I agree with you totally. That information is very, very important when it comes to developing policy like Huawei and other things like that. I mean, they should be able to pick up the phone and say, I want to meet with so-and-so tomorrow about this and, and get, bring me up to speed on that. Yeah, and I think this is this is an important thing. Um, you know, we our Five Eyes partners, like Canada, I think there's this kind of narrative that like, oh, Canada's doing fine, we, we don't have to worry about it. And then there's this kind of, oh, we're a total disaster and everyone thinks we're terrible. That's not how our Five Eyes partners see us. I, our Five Eyes partners see us as making important contributions uh, in, in very key and important areas. Uh, in particular, if you talk to our Five Eyes partners, and I have, like things like Arctic intelligence, um, Russian, we're, we're very good on, on monitoring Russian um, movements in the Arctic and things like that. And that's very valuable, especially, say, right now when you have a conflict going on. So I think the thing is, they know we do good work. They would like us to do more of it and they would like us to take national security more seriously and, and, and to kind of step up our game. But that's not to say we're not doing, you know, we're not doing anything, but like we are, um, they, they just would like us to to do a bit more. The question is, you know, and and look, I'm sure like 90% of the time when you're on the radio and you're talking to Canadians and which is, you know, really important. I, actually, in fact, I'm pretty sure you're more informed about what. Canadians are thinking I am. Um, you know, they want dental care. They want lower taxes. They want, um, you know, they want better roads. They want uh, cheaper houses. Like these are the kinds of things that Canadians have prioritized because we've we have always felt safe. But as these kinds of, you know, the threats that can affect us change through disinformation, through economic national security issues, through foreign interference, and the, you know, our our ocean boundaries no longer protect us. Um, I think we are starting to see a, a movement towards needing to to do that. So I hope I hope that's where we go. I hope that this entire you know this entire controversy is just baby shambles. And if we could, if there's a silver lining here, it's my sincere hope that it is the transformation of the community into something that's more useful, better for policymakers, and, and things like that. Uh, yeah, and by the way, you, you, I think you nailed it. That, that, those are the things that concern Canadians, especially you know inflation. You know, we can't afford a house. What are my kids going to do? Can't put food on the table. But we yeah, also their answer know that, isn't let's give money to CSIS. <laughs> no, but that's part <laughs> exactly. of the problem. And and I yeah. I know I've talked with uh, our friend Phil Gersky many times, a former CSIS employee, uh, and they're frustrated. And I'm sure they are, and I can understand why they're frustrated. I think as Canadians, we understand that that stuff is important, but not as important as as you know getting my mortgage rate down and things like that. But that's where governments come in. I mean, you know, the, we elect people to make call, tough calls on stuff like this and saying, exactly. okay, I know you guys don't understand exactly why that money has to be allocated there, but it does for your own safety. And you mentioned this in the op-ed piece uh, that, that you and Tom wrote. Um, you said that, uh, uh, where is it? Now? Canada's intelligence and national security culture and institutions are immature and unsophisticated. Now, now the, th that may sound a little harsh, but I think it's true. But that's a fixable problem, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it's not to, to denigrate the people who are in these institutions. No. I think these people are very smart. The problem is, it's like the institutions just, you know, it's like putting a race car driver in a lotta, you know, it's just not going to go. And, you know, or it will, it's just going to go very slowly. Um, so like, what we need to do is kind of like amp up the, the, uh, you know, like the, the nerdy term for this is called machinery of governments, right? Machinery of government being like the things that, you know, how processes work in government. So if we can't, we need to, 
it's not even so much fine tune. I think we need an engine replacement. I think we, I'm using this car analogy a little too much, maybe. But like, if we think of it this way, we do need to restructure the way that intelligence flows in government. I think Canadians would want that. I think you know, for all for all they do care about uh, interest rates and things like that. And by the way, I have a crazy mortgage, and I'm waiting on the announcement today about mm-hmm. interest rates. Yeah, so I get it. But like, I think at the end of the day, they don't want to have to worry about national security. And one of the ways you do that is by putting the institutions in place that ensure that intelligence is flowing in in the right direction, that we have better coordination of the community, that um, products are being read, products are being disseminated, and people are actually acting on it. So I think that this is um, this is where we need to go. I just think it's a matter of um, also teaching people what is the value of intelligence and what are, but also really importantly, what are its limitations, right? Intelligence isn't, isn't forecasting. It's not a crystal ball. It's just kind of a uh, an assessment of a certain state of play where we're at. And so how can we then use that most effectively to give, and again, I'll use a nerdy term here, what's often called decision advantage. In other words, how can we make the best decisions possible on the information that we have? Well, and that's, again, dependent on the information that's available, isn't it? And and it's one of those things, that it, it's like it's like that speech Jack Nicholson made, just Colonel Jessup and a few good men. I never thought I'd be quoting that, but, you know, they <laughs> provide that, that blanket of security every night so we can go to bed and know that they got our back. You know, we don't think about them all the time. We just know that they're there, and if something arises, uh, we can feel safe and secure. Well, we, we kind of need that from, from our intelligence agencies, too. Uh, but that means they're going to have to have government support to do this. I, I feel badly for, for people. That, that are in that business because, they, you know, they're dedicated, they're, they're doing a, a job that needs to be done, uh, and they're not getting as much support from the government as they probably could. Yeah, I, I would say I would agree with that. I think one of the issues, though, is that, like, they've also made some pretty poor decisions about how they've um, approached intelligence. Like, to be fair, this is a two-way street, right? Um, yeah. I don't, I don't want to just point fingers at the government. At the end of the day, you know, CSIS kind of was mount intelligence, right? And it kind of was like this little intelligence mountain, and it never really engaged with policymakers until it realized it was it, it was losing arguments about things like Huawei, about things like uh, foreign investment and things like that. And it had to do a better job of doing outreach. But for a very long time, it was quite content for it to just kind of do its job in the shadows and not really worry about it. And now we're realizing the extent, both sides, I think, to which they need to communicate. And like, I mean, the idea that they didn't inform, do a better job of informing the government about the Michael Chong thing is just mind blowing to me. It's just so mm-hmm. mind blowing. It was a terrible decision. And so, you know, all sides need to do a better job. But, um, you know, we're not going to we're not going to fix this if we're just only pointing fingers at, at Mr. Johnson. No, absolutely not. And uh, uh, well, we got to wrap it up. We're just about out of time. But, but even your reference to a Russian made a lot of it is, is, I think, <laughs> testimony to to your in-depth, in-depth knowledge about intelligence agencies and, and the, the other guys, too. Stephanie, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for this today. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's great to be back. Thanks so much. Take care. Stephanie Carvin, uh, I'm a professor of uh, international affairs at Carleton University and, and a, considered to be and acknowledged as uh, a worldwide expert when it comes to these sorts of things. So it's, it's a great piece in the uh, Globe and Mail. You should check it out when you get a second. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We know about what's going on in Ukraine. The war is there. There's, a, a, I guess, an attempted Ukraine offensive. Uh, Canadians are there. We've set equipment, uh, a lot of equipment, of course. You've heard those announcements. And it's starting to arrive, and that's all good news. And we know that there are Canadians over there who are training troops uh, in well, Latvia and other countries uh, for the, the war that's going on there. Uh, however, the report that, uh, that I saw yesterday uh, is, is shocking and, and, quite frankly, disappointing. Uh, an embarrassing gear shortage has Canadian troops in Latvia actually buying their own helmets, their own equipment. It's not just helmets. 
We didn't know things were, were that dire with the troops. So I want to bring our next guest in to talk about this. Uh, Christian Leprec is a uh, professor at uh, Royal Military College and also at Queen's University specializing uh, in these issues. Uh, Christian, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. You bet, Bill. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Listen, we, we, I, I still remember when after 9-11 and uh, there was the, the move, of course, to get to everybody over to Afghanistan to, to find bin Laden, et cetera, and Canadian troops jumped in as, as they should have in situations, but they were so ill-equipped, you know, with the wrong kind of camouflage, the wrong kind of equipment, et cetera, et cetera. Did we learn from that at all? Because it seems to be repeating the same problem here. So this is the challenge of how you regard your military, right? So do you think of your military as an insurance policy? And if you have a full spectrum military, do you make sure that your armed forces are prepared for any eventuality? Because as we learn now, it turns out when there's a conflict, A, the material that we need is actually very difficult to procure, and B, uh, that everyone else is trying to procure the same material. So obviously, it's going to be very difficult to obtain, and you're going to be paying a premium for it. But it's also a broader reflection, I think, of the last 25 years that governments on both sides of the political aisle have treated the military sort of as a bit of a luxury. You know, like we uh, we send the military on missions that sort of uh, we choose the missions we send them on. We can pick the force packages that we send on those missions. And over all of a sudden, over the last year or so, we've discovered, well, actually, uh, it turns out that we don't have those options anymore and that actually the military is absolutely vital foreign policy instrument for this country in defending our interests at home and abroad. And of course, we should have known that. Look, we've been training Ukrainian soldiers since 2015, ostensibly because we knew and we figured the Russians were coming. We've been in Latvia since 2017, ostensibly uh, on a deterrence and collective defense mission. And yet here we are six years into the enhanced forward presence mission and eight years into this government's mandate. And we still have trouble procuring some of the most basic equipment for the Canadian armed forces. Bill, these are political choices. Well, absolutely. And it, just before you joined us, we were talking about the intelligence uh, concerns here with Stephanie Carvin uh, from Carleton University. I know you know Stephanie. And uh, and just, it, it was, yeah, we were singing from the same song sheet here, Christian. The government doesn't seem to think it's important. They know it's important, but when it comes time for budgets and funding, uh, it's just not there because we, there is no hue and cry uh, from the, the voters who elect these people to say, you know what, you need to be spending more money on that. But, uh, you know, I, I saw the piece in the CBC, I'm sure you did too, about this. And there's General Wayne Eyre, the head of defense staff. He's talking to a soldier in Latvia. That's not an issue helmet this guy's wearing. He probably got, I don't know if he got it on Amazon or what, but, you know, when you have to bring your own equipment to a war zone like that, I mean, there's something terribly wrong. And it's not like the equipment isn't available, right? As that story also reported, uh, Danish soldiers are showing up with superior Canadian-made equipment yeah. that we are unable to procure for the Canadian armed forces. I mean, the ironies could not be more stunning um, in terms of the cognitive dissonance that we have when it comes to defense policy, defense spending. But, you know, you're right, right? So for one thing, there's no money to be, there's no elections and votes to be had in uh, spending money on the Defense. And so ultimately, especially I think for the current government, they see it more as a liability and potentially controversial. So uh, they shy away from it in the way they go about the topic. Uh, there's also a lot going on in the government, as we know, when it comes to intelligence, security, defense issues. And I get the sense that people are having a really hard time, not just prioritizing issues, but simply making sure that issues actually get done and get over the line. And I think this is partially a function of that no government has been 
more centralized in this country's history than the current federal government under Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And yet, so on the one hand, this prime minister's office wants to control anything and everything. We've heard from the chief of staff that we have the all-knowing, all-doing, all-dancing prime minister who's aware of everything. And yet at the same time, nobody in this government ever seems to take responsibility when things actually go wrong. It's everyone else's fault except for the prime minister's office and except for ministers. And in the Westminster parliamentary system, the basic constitutional principle on, on which we function is ministerial responsibility. It's not the civil servant's fault when things go wrong. It is ultimately the minister's fault and the government's fault. And yet we here we have a government that seems to take no responsibility for pretty much anything. But even I'm, I'm talking even small stuff, and I agree. I, that's a, a bang on assessment of what's going on here. Uh, there's a, some responsibility here from the, for these ministers, and certainly from the PMO to be doing something like this. But when you see the, you know the the long list here of things that where we're short. Uh, and by the way, helmets a helmet. What's the big deal? You can get a helmet. No, no, no. These are specially designed helmets, uh, built in hearing protection uh, that doubles as a headset, which is imperative uh, for source, forces that are fighting. Uh, the other element too, and and this is one of the ones that just shocked me though, Christian. Is there are women in the in the Canadian forces? There are women that are training. Women on the front lines these days. They all wear body armor. Uh, the body armor that for men uh, is not the same. And if, for the, the people in the upper echelons of the Canadian military, men and women are built differently, and they have not made that accommodation yet. I mean, we're we're still living in the twentieth century here. So, Bill, the accommodation has been made in policy and in practice. The issue is actually procuring the kit that members actually need. So this is not part of the ignorance of the Canadian Armed Forces. It is part of this sort of, as I said, like the, the cognitive dissonance that we have. So on the one hand, how many politicians from all political parties have you said, well, we, may, we want to make sure that our Canadian Armed Forces, women, men, and other members of the Armed Forces have the equipment they need to do their jobs. And yet here we have evidence that the most basic equipment is not available to soldiers. And on top of that, this is a government that has staked its its principle on equity, diversity, inclusion. How much do we keep on hearing from this government about trying to make this country a better place in terms of diversity? And yet here again, procuring the actual kit that the Canadian Armed Forces need to make sure we can actually make that happen in practice just simply doesn't happen. We have a female minister of national defense. I think this is something that requires top political priority and it just shows it appears not to be a political priority priority for this government or for this cabinet. It's all words, no action. But shouldn't the the, the main thrust here and, and the, the mantra of, of the Department of Defense, especially in this particular situation, is we are putting Canadian troops in harm's way. Do we not have a moral responsibility uh, to equip them as best possible so that they can be as safe as possible? And, and that doesn't seem to be the, at front of mind for a lot of these decision makers. Bill, yesterday, the commanding officer of the Van Dues that have been sent to to fight for help for fight forest fires in Quebec made a statement clearly indicating that this is not something his troops are prepared for. What I read between the lines is here: the government is putting troops 
in harm's way for things that they are not prepared for and that they are not equipped for. This is not just a problem when it comes to the Latvia mission. It is more broadly a problem for the Canadian Armed Forces. On the one hand, no government that I can remember in Canadian history has more made more widespread use of the Canadian Armed Forces across a broader spectrum of tasks. And yet no government has been, in my view, as negligent in making sure the Canadian Armed Forces have the training, the equipment and the staffing that they need to do this increasingly diverse tasking of jobs. And so I think the reckoning is coming here, Bill. This organization needs political leadership. And as we see from these stories, it is not getting the political attention, the political priorities and the political leadership that is urgently required for an organization that is absolutely integral to the, to the democracy in this country, to defending these countries' interests and to keeping Canadians safe. We just uh, kind of tight on time, but I got one final question that I'd really like to get uh, some perspective on. And, and you're right, by the way. I mean, it, it seems that for years now, about the only time we actually heard about the Canadian forces in the in the news was when they were piling sandbags along the Red River in the spring when it would flood. Uh, you know, and that's not what they're trained for. That's not what they signed up for. But given the the, the global situation as it is right now, given the pressure that uh, that President Biden, south of us, and the rest of the NATO forces, by the way. Are, are imploring Canada to step up their their contributions here. Is there going to be pressure on the Canadian government to say, okay, yeah, we got to be real about this now? So, yeah, I mean, part of the challenge is that, yes, this is part of a, a, a problem of the government's making, but it is also a problem of these 25 years of benign neglect. And I think there are now so many urgent priorities within this organization that I think the government is having a really hard time trying to figure out how do we fix issues that really are medium and long-term problems in the short term. And there's so many issues that are coming to head. And we can only hope that defense policy update this government has underway is not actually going, is going to generate a coherent strategic document and that the government will for once actually conduct a defense policy that brings the opposition parties on board and does what Denmark, France, Australia, and several other allies do, which is not to politicize the armed forces, but actually work together with opposition parties to chart a coherent uh, way forward for the Canadian armed forces that can reconstitute and rebuild this organization over the next 15 years, because that's how long I think it will take. Wow. Well, hopefully this is the beginning of it. Christian, always great to get your perspective. Thanks so much for this today. It's been my pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Christian Luprecht, a professor at Royal Military College and Queen's University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The league golf story should have been the Canadian Open, which is coming up this weekend, of course, at Oakdale Golf and Country Club. Beautiful course, as a matter of fact. Uh, but it was overshadowed by the bombshell announcement yesterday about a merger between the PGA and the Live folks, uh, which I, just about nobody saw coming. Uh, I want to get some perspective on this from our next guest. He, of course, is Joe Callahan, who's a journalist uh, who writes for the Toronto Star and the Guardian uh, and the Irish Examiner. I, I read the piece this morning in the Examiner about <laughs> this. Uh, Joe is actually uh, over at Oakdale Golf and Country Club right now uh, and joins us for a few minutes. Uh, Joe, first of all, thank you on a busy day today for spending some time with us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, always happy to spend some time, Bill. But yeah, it's been a it's been a wild twenty four hours. Well, I, I caught a couple of minutes of, of Rory's uh, media conference this morning. Mm-hmm. I know this is kind of the practice round day, and he uh, he's not a happy camper. I mean, he said he was resigned to the fact, but uh, he's he's he he looked kind of perplexed. I mean, this caught a lot of people off guard, didn't it? It really did, and you know, he kind of outlined when he learned. He learned at about six thirty yesterday morning, which is you know maybe kind of an hour or two before it actually became public. 
But given where Rory McIlroy has sat in this fight between the PGA Tour and Liv over the last year, 16, 18 months, for him to find out a couple of hours before the deal is announced and when the deal is already kind of signed and sealed, it tells you a lot about kind of the nature of this deal, how secretive it was, how delicately they handled it. Um, because they knew it would be what it was, which is an absolute bombshell. And they knew that people would take a lot of time to come to terms with it. And, you know, sitting in there with Rory just uh, at 10 a.m., just, 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 uh, just over an hour ago, um, I, I actually felt for him, Bill. I have to say, I felt for him. Um, there was this resignation uh, in his voice, in his face, even in his shoulders. Uh, he had his hand over his chin at different times. And yet at the same time, there were still a few last flashes of uh, defiance and, uh, you know, kind of putting it up to the live guys, all these kind of golfers who had defected to the Saudi tour over the last year. Rory has been the one who has kind of, you know, called them out on it for over a year and more. And now all of a sudden the Saudis ultimately have completed a full takeover of golf is what it looks like and feels like and sounds like. And that seemed to be dawning on Rory, and he was having a tough time with it. Did you get the sense, I mean, just with his body language anyway, uh, Joe, that he felt as if as if the PGA had abandoned him? I mean, he he stuck his neck out there when a lot of guys didn't and, and said spoke his mm-hmm. mind and, and laid things out there. And he was, as you say, kind of the unofficial spokesperson for the PGA Tour. Uh, not too many of the players, as, as you and I've talked about in the past, a uh, whole, whole lot of respect for Jay Monahan these days. And we'll talk about that in a second, but Rory mm-hmm. was the guy and, and, you know, he, he, he put himself out there and, and, you know, it's kind of like when you look behind you and Hey, he's Monahan stabbed him in the back. I think that's the, the kind of mindset he had this morning. Yeah. Yeah. There was, I, I agree with you 100%. And the body language said that, and, you know, ultimately Rory has found out something here. I think there was a line in the ringer this morning, which is very good, uh, kind of put it, as, as succinctly as you can, is he, he's learned that either you sell out or someone else will sell you out themselves, you know, and unfortunately that's what's happened. And, and Rory, you know, his first, uh, his first instinct is always honesty and maybe his second is diplomacy. Um, and so that's how the press conference started, cer- c- certainly. But once he kind of got into the weeds and the details of it all, and look, a lot of this is still unknown. This deal is going to face a lot of pushback because this looks like basically a complete monopoly of the sport of golf with Saudis at the head of it. Um, there's antitrust and all sorts of litigation that, you know, they hope has gone away, but might actually be kind of around for a little while yet. But nonetheless, Rory ultimately is the one, like you say, who has put himself out there. And he did say at one stage, you know, as journalists, we kind of look for a line from a press conference like this. And the two lines that jumped out at me was, well, maybe three, but one the, was I still hate live and I hate everything it stands for, which was quite striking. But the more kind of one, like I say, when I started to feel sorry for him was, yeah, there's a bit of me that maybe feels like I'm still sitting up here like a sacrificial lamb. You know, I think there's a a slow resignation that he's kind of been played a little bit. Um, And maybe that's a strong word because, you know, he's a smart guy. He has made the decisions he has made. And uh, he's a guy who kind of carries himself very well, speaks very openly and honestly, doesn't shirk away from questions. But ultimately, this feels like a lot of people were pawns on a chessboard. Well, in uh, the piece I read that you uh, that you uh, submitted for the Irish Examiner this morning, uh, you talked about an exchange uh, between Rory and and uh, Grayson Murray, who's uh, world number 227. 
Uh, and uh, it got pretty intense from uh, from your reporting on this, Joe. A couple of F-bombs were thrown in there, too. I mean, there's an awful lot of passion here, and especially, as you say, from Rory's standpoint. Yeah, and, and I think he kind of maybe walked back a little bit of what he said there. Uh, so in the players' meeting yesterday when Jay Monaghan met here at Oakdale with the players uh, at 4 p.m. yesterday evening, um, there was a lot of anger in the room. A lot of players felt that they had been kind of sold a pup, as we'd say in Ireland, over the last kind of year mm-hmm. um, by Monaghan and ultimately agreeing to kind of uh, a deal with the Saudis. But there was uh, this sh- kind of line from Grayson Allen where he called on uh, Jay Monaghan to step down and Rory kind of not leapt in Monaghan's defense, but came out with a line that maybe you just need to play better, you know, um, Alan is a world number 227 and he's among a cohort that ultimately this deal might really, really hurt because they may lose their playing cards. You have mm-hmm. yeah, their tour cards, I should say. You know, you have 30 or 30 yeah. odd guys from Liv who might come back onto the PGA Tour and all of a sudden the guys who are on the lower end will no longer be on the PGA Tour making the huge sums of money they do. How's this going to affect the, 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 the relationship between the players? I mean, there was, you know, as you say, a couple of live players that were, well, the Masters and a couple of other tournaments because they pre-qualified because of past victories, Dustin Johnson and others. Uh, but there was clearly some friction uh, between the PGA guys and, and those guys. Um, and, and almost, uh, if you were listening to Jim Dansko doing the play-by-play on a couple of those tournaments, almost like, uh, oh, boy, there's DeChambeau's, he's getting blasted. And they kind of enjoyed the fact that those guys weren't playing very well in the tournament. Uh, it's going to take a long time to heal some of these wounds if they ever heal. Yeah, and, and so much of this was led by Monaghan, Bill. You know, like, yeah. Monaghan had pushed so many of his guys out there to kind of, you know, sell, like, you know, portray Liv as the bad guys. This is a good versus evil thing. Monaghan reached for all sorts of analogies. He leaned into kind of the 9-11 versus the Saudis analogies and things like that. And all of a sudden, then he signs this deal. So, yeah, he has kind of created this sense. And for golf fans too, Bill, not just the players, right? You know, yeah. there are fans who've been told that Liv are the bad guys over the last 12 months. And now it's kind of, okay, we've actually kind of let them ultimately kind of take over the entire running of the sport of golf. It's not just the PGA Tour, it's the DP, DP World Tour, which is the European Tour as well. Um, and yet, the fans are confused, the players are confused because there's still so much detail to come out. Like when Rory kind of said, you know, it did feel like his kind of final flashes of defiance more than anything else. But he said, you know, this really has nothing to do with Liv. You know, it does. It, it does. The Saudis started Liv and it was almost like their Trojan horse um, to upset and kind of knock golf off its kind of uh, off its kind of secure footing. And ultimately, they've managed to kind of somehow maneuver their way into taking over sport. And this won't stop at golf, Bill. Like that is the feeling here. You know, yeah. the Saudis have pumped huge money into boxing, huge money into Formula One. Are currently in the process of. I mean, Karim Benzema, who was the World Soccer Player of the Year, just signed a deal yesterday to go and play soccer for a Saudi club. The deal he signed is worth almost as much as an NFL roster, as much as there's... He's he's getting over $200 million a year to play. This is the money. And when I asked Rory that question about kind of the inevitability of the Saudis taking over, you know, that's when he really was resigned. And he said, you know, it's, it's better to have them on your side than have them as an enemy. 
Well, yeah, and just paraphrasing, he seemed to say, you know, there's a whole bunch of people here that have way more money than the rest of us, and if they're going to use that to promote golf, he says, but he kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, I guess that's a good thing. Uh, with so much more to talk yeah. about. We're right up against the clock here, Joan. I know you've got to get back to yep. work over at, uh, at Oak Hill. It's a fabulous course. I guess the overriding question right now yep. is, can Maury set this aside and, and defend his championship? But we'll talk about that a little later in the week. Thanks for this today, Joe. Always a pleasure. Always good to chat, Bill. Take Talk care. Soon. Joe Callahan, uh, who, of course, covers golf and soccer for uh, the Toronto Star, the Guardian, and uh, for that fine Irish paper, the Irish Examiner. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.